Heard a story this past week about this little girl who her entire family was coming to her house for Christmas. And so grandma, grandpa, aunts, uncles, cousins, they were all coming to her family's house for Christmas. And all week, mom was kind of stressing out over the whole thing. You know, she's planning meals, trying to figure out where everybody's going to sleep and all of that. And uh, everybody got there. They sat down for the Christmas meal. And the mother looked at the little girl and said, "Uh, honey, would you like to say the blessing? Well, the little girl sat there for a minute. And she looked at her mom and was like, mom, I don't know what to say. And her mom said, well, honey, that's okay. Just say what you've heard mommy say. Yeah. And so the little girl bowed her head, closed her eyes, and said, Dear Lord, why in the world did I invite all these people for Christmas? <laughs> That's the way some of you are going to feel here in a few days. But, uh, well, this is the last week of our Advent series. And uh, Advent, you know, of course, we've talked about this. Advent is a time of waiting. And we're waiting, first of all, for Christmas. We haven't entered into Christmas yet. Uh, this is Advent, so we're waiting for Christmas when we celebrate the first Advent, which is a word that means coming, the first coming of Jesus. But then we're also waiting for his second Advent, his second coming, when Jesus will return. And so over the past few weeks, we've been talking about some of the themes of Advent, and we've been using the, the idea of isn't he. So we've talked about isn't he hope, that he's somebody who brings hope, and isn't he peace, and isn't he joy. And uh, last week I said that if there's one word that best describes Christmas, it would have to be that word joy. This morning I want to talk to you about the one word that I think best describes Jesus, who Jesus is, and that is the word love. Isn't he love? That, that Jesus is love personified. It's not something that uh, Jesus simply does, it's who he is. And so when Jesus showed up as Emmanuel, God with us, love also showed up because he is love, which is a good thing because this world that Jesus entered into was a world that desperately needed to experience genuine self-sacrificing love. In fact, the world that Jesus entered into was a world that uh, for many, it, it had become void of love. It was a world where cruelty ruled. Sometimes we look back and we don't recognize or understand the world that Jesus really entered into, but it was a cruel world. It was a world where life was cheap. It was a world where human life was treated as a commodity to be used or traded for self-benefit. It was a world where there was a distinct line that was drawn between the have and the have-nots. You think we have it bad now, but there was a distinct line between the haves and the have-nots. And if you were a part of the have-nots, you didn't have a whole lot of hope. It was a world where uh, displays of violence equaled power. And so it was a world that desperately needed to experience true self-sacrificing love. And this was the world that some 700 years before Jesus, a poet by the name of Isaiah prophesied that one day a Messiah would come. In fact, no one wrote more about the coming Messiah than this Isaiah guy, and it was from his poems written somewhere in the 8th century B.C. where we first hear about a virgin conceiving and giving birth, and We first hear about a baby whose name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And and so this morning, as we talk about love showing up, what I want to do is I want to just read a little bit of Isaiah for you this morning 
fact, I want to read from Isaiah chapter 11. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. Uh, the passage of Scripture will also be on the screen. But Isaiah chapter 11, I'm just going to begin reading with verse 1. Isaiah writes this. He writes, out of the stump of David's family, I'm reading from the New Living Version, out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. I want to stop right there. Isaiah begins what has become known as the root of Jesse poem. That's what this is. It's a poem. And he begins this poem with the image of a stump. Something that was once a tree, something that once held promise, but it now is reduced to nothing but a dead old stump. No apparent signs of life. It's, it, it's not bearing any fruit. It's not flourishing. It's nothing more than a stump. And what this stump represents is the family or the dynasty of King David. Jesse was David's father. And you see, there was a time where hope was high in the nation of Israel, and everybody believed that the line of kings that began with David would bring about this vision that Moses first held of filling the earth with the righteous rule of God, whose foundation would be based on the law of love, and that through right living or righteous living based on love, it would create an environment of righteousness. And that society would be reorganized and centered around the Torah, the law, the Ten Commandments. And it was believed that all this would come about through the line of this king, this guy named David. And God makes lots of promises about this. He makes promises actually to the household of David. He says that one day all the nations are going to bow down to one of the descendants of David. Now David was the first king of this dynasty. And what we know about David is, we know this, that he was a man after God's own heart. That's what the Bible says. It's how it describes him, that he was a worshiper. He had this heart that burned for God. And, and so David is ruling as king. And during his rule, he has this son, and his son's name is Solomon. And Solomon becomes very famous for, you know what he became famous for? Wisdom. Wisdom. His wisdom. And, and through Solomon, Israel reaches this high level of uh, magnificence and grandeur and influence. And, and you need to remember this about Solomon is that even though Solomon is the son of David, he's also the son-in-law of Pharaoh. Solomon marries Pharaoh's daughter in order to establish an alliance between Egypt and Israel. And, and, and unfortunately, over time... Solomon begins to behave less like his father David and more like his father-in-law, Pharaoh. Well, while David had this heart that hungered and thirsted for God and God alone, Solomon actually at the end of his 40-year reign had actually begun building worship spaces for all of the gods of Egypt. And, and then the next thing that happens is Solomon has a son. This guy by the name of Rehoboam comes to be king, and he was a disaster. And then there's a civil war that breaks out, and Israel is divided. And after that, most of the kings of both Israel and Judah were terrible. They, they failed to operate under the law of love and righteousness that Moses had envisioned. 
And so by the time that we get to Isaiah's Root of Jesse poem, this Davidic dynasty seems to be nothing more than a failure. It was a stump that Isaiah presents in this vision. And in this vision, this image of a stump is speaking to the deep failure of the Davidic dynasty. That this nation that began with so much hope and promise has now become nothing more than just another Middle Eastern monarchy. And so hope has been dashed, and it's in the midst of this dashed hope that this poet, the prophet Isaiah, imagines a marvelous thing. This is how prophetic the prophetic works. Isaiah presents the situation in, 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 as it is. It's in dire straits. It's, it's nothing more than a stump, this Davidic dynasty that was supposed to be so great, and now it's a, just a dead old stump. But Isaiah says this. He says, wait a second, because one day out of this stump, now I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to happen, but one day out of this stump, there's going to grow a new shoot. Sometimes he calls it a shoot, sometimes he calls it a root. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to give us this visual image. He says, out of this dead old stump, this shoot is going to grow up, and it's going to turn green, and it's going to flourish, and it's going to fill the entire world with its fruit. What is its fruit? The fruit of love and righteousness and justice. In other words, from this royal line of David, one day, Isaiah says, I don't know when it's going to happen, but one day hope is going to spring anew. And from the royal line of David's king will come one who will eventually fulfill God's promises and Israel's hope. And again, Isaiah, he doesn't say when. He doesn't know when. He has no idea. He just says the day will come. The day will come. He goes on. He says, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. And so from this seemingly failed house of David, Isaiah says this unnamed king is going to come onto the scene. And again, Isaiah, he doesn't know his name. Because he, he, you know, he, he just doesn't know it. He doesn't know his name. And he doesn't know when this king will come. He just says it's going to happen. But he says out of this dead old stump, this new shoot is going to grow. And he says, guess what? When this new king comes, he's going to be anointed by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of Yahweh. <laughs> You see, in, in ancient Israel, when kings were anointed and when they were, or when they were inaugurated as king, one of the things that would happen is they would take a horn of oil and they would pour it over their head and they would anoint this king. And the oil, what it represented was it represented the authority and the favor of God. It meant that this king, when the oil was poured over the king's head, it meant that this guy was God's chosen guy. He was chosen by God. He was given the authority of God to rule over the people. This was God's guy. It's it's actually where we get the word messiah, which means Messiah, which also is translated as Christ. You see, Christ, Christ wasn't Jesus' last name. It was a title, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Christ, the christened one, the anointed one. And Isaiah says, listen, here's what's going to happen. 
I know the house of David, it looks like it's all done for. It just looks like a dead old stump. But out of the house of David, there's going to come a new shoot. There's going to be a new king. And when this king comes, he's going to be anointed, but not just with oil. He is going to be anointed with the spirit of God, the spirit of Yahweh. The spirit of Yahweh is going to be poured out on him. And again, he says, I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know what his name's going to be. I just know it's going to happen. Earlier in chapter 9, Isaiah says, you know, I don't, I don't know his given name, but, but he's going to be called Wonderful Counselor. He, he's going to be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And, and so Isaiah is working on this, this prophetic, poetic vision of a new king, the shoot from the house of David. And again, Isaiah, he doesn't know exactly when or who, but we, we know he's ta- who he's talking about, right? Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. But seven centuries before, Isaiah is given this prophetic word about the coming Messiah we know to be Jesus. And even though the people didn't know who the Messiah would be, they did have an idea of what he would be. The, the first thing that they knew was that when this Messiah came, they knew he would be from the line of David. You know, that, you know, all those genealogies that we tend to skip over in Matthew and Luke, that's why these are important. It is because they show that, yep, Jesus, he marks that box. He's from the line of David, from the house of David, from the root of Jesse. And so we know that this messianic king has to come from the line of the house of David. And we know that this king has to be anointed with the spirit of the living God. Remember Jesus at the Jordan River. He's being baptized by John. And the Holy Spirit comes down upon him. And a voice from heaven speaks, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He is anointed by the spirit of Yahweh. Isaiah goes on in verse 4. It says, and he will give justice to the poor. And he will make Fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word. And I love this. And one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. So when this Messiah, this anointed king comes, and again, Isaiah has no idea when it'll be, but he knows that his reign is going to be marked by a couple of things. First of all, justice for the poor. And secondly, fairness for the exploited. This is so important because you need to understand in Isaiah's day, this was a problem. In the 7th, 8th century BC, Isaiah talks about this. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 2, he says, you know, one of the big problems is that the rich have bought up all the land. And the rich, they just keep getting richer, and the poor just keep getting poorer because the rich have bought up the land. And, and so the, the, the poor, those who aren't rich, those who aren't the 1%, they have to live as tenant farmers or sharecroppers, and they're basically indentured servants. They can't get out of debt. And the rich keep getting richer, and the poor can't get out of debt. And Isaiah's talking about this, this environment that was basically structural economic injustice. And it was completely opposite of what Moses had set up. You, you see, through Moses, they were to have what was called the year of Jubilee. Every 49 years, there was 49 years, and then the 50th year was the year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, all the land would go back to its original owners, the original families, those who had inherited it. 
as they entered into the promised land. But they weren't doing that anymore. Uh, I mean, you can imagine some rich guy who, over the years, he's accumulated, you know, 10,000 acres or something like that. And, and all of a sudden, it's a year of jubilee. And he doesn't like the idea of, okay, now I have to give all that my family's accumulated over the past 49 years back to the original family. It's because it's their inheritance. This was the law of Moses, but they had stopped doing that. And then also there was a problem with the judicial system, Isaiah says. He says that when this Messiah comes, he's going to give justice to the poor, and he's going to make fair decisions for the exploited. You see, the problem was that the courts had this tendency to rule in favor of the rich and powerful. Not at all like today. The courts tended to side against the poor. And the judges, they were open to bribery, and it seemed like the poor people couldn't get any justice in the courts. They, they had no way to get a leg up in the economic system. They couldn't get any justice in the, in the courts. And so the poor and powerless, they suffered from these economic injustice. They, they suffered from injustice in the courts. And Isaiah says, listen, when this king comes, when this shoot that's going to come out of the stump of Jesse comes, when he comes, he's going to fix all that stuff. He's going to make those things right. He says that this righteous king will rule with the force of his word. Notice, notice that there's no reference to a sword or military might. It says that he'll rule with the force of his word. And one breath from his mouth, and the wicked are destroyed. Then in verse 6, Isaiah gives us this incredible image. This is where I wanted to get to. Um, but Isaiah gives us this incredible image of what the reign of this messianic king will be like. And he says this. It's a very famous passage of scripture. He says, in that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. And the leper will lie down with the baby goat. And the calf and the yearling will be safe from the lion. And he says, and a little child will lead them all. Wow, isn't that interesting? In order to imagine what the world would be like when this messianic king comes and rules, Isaiah is doing something here that I want us to understand. He's using a literary technique called zoomorphism. And zoomorphism is where uh, you take and you depict human beings as animals. And it was a, it's a popular literary device. In fact, it's still used. Oftentimes, it's used in a very popular medium, uh, cartoons. That's, they use zoomorphism in cartoons. In fact, uh, does anybody remember? This is way back in the 70s, so some of you weren't even born yet. But anybody remember back in the 70s when the wonderful world of Disney came out with a remake of the movie Robin Hood? Anybody remember that? A few of you? Y'all, the rest of you don't want to tell your age, all right? I remember that. Um, I remember it because um, the wonderful world of Disney was on at 6 p.m. on Sunday nights. And we had church at 6 p.m. on Sunday nights. And this was before, you know, VHSs, and some of you don't even know what that is, but before you could record stuff, you know, it was before Netflix so that you could watch it later. Um, and so this was way back in the day, and I don't know why we didn't have church that night, but we didn't have church that night, and I got to watch Robin Hood on the wonderful world of Disney. 
And, and so what, what they did in the Robin Hood is uh, Robin Hood was a fox. Remember that? We have that? Yeah, Robin Hood. There he is right there. Robin Hood was a fox. And uh, Prince John, he was one of the bad guys. He's a lion. Uh, his assistant is a snake. Uh, Little John is a bear. Friar Tuck is a badger. And then the sheriff of Nottingham, he's the bad guy. He was a wolf. And then some of the other good guys, you know, they were rabbits and squirrels and turtles and stuff like that. And the bad guys were like crocodiles and different animals and things like that. But, but basically, what Isaiah is doing is that. He's creating this image. He's using his prophetic imagination in order to give his readers a picture of what the messianic age is going to look like. He says, in that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. He says, the leper will lie down with the baby goat and the calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion. And so in order to understand what he's saying, all you have to do is just think of Disney, the Disney movie Robin Hood. And the reason that this is important is because if you take this poem, which that's what it is, it's a poem, it's a prophetic poem, if you take this poem literally then you're going to miss the point of what Isaiah is trying to help us understand. If you literalize this poem and say, well, what we're doing is we're all just waiting for the day when the carnivores become herbivores, and that's when everything's going to be okay. If that's what you take from this, then you miss the point. Listen, and, and this is much to my wife's chagrin, Isaiah isn't really worried about whether wolves eat lambs. Or whether lions eat calves. That's not what he's worried about. Laura, Laura hates those. Every time I turn on the nature shows, you know, where they're out in the Sahara, Sahara or whatever, and there's lions out there and they're attacking an antelope, Laura's always like, turn it. I hate that. I hate that. Okay? Isaiah don't care about that. He, he doesn't care about uh, that because that's not what's wrong with the world. What Isaiah is worried about is he's not worried about literal wolves and lions. What he's worried about is human wolves and human lions and human leopards, human predators, people who mistreat and take advantage of other people. That's the problem that existed in Isaiah's world. That's the problem that existed in the world that Jesus entered into. And so Isaiah says, he says, in that day, when, when the Messiah comes, when the shoot of David comes, that, that the wolf and the lamb are going to live together, and the leper is going to lie down with the baby goat, and the calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion, because, you know, he's already said that the Messiah is going to bring justice for the poor, and he's going to make fair decisions for the exploited. And so this is just another way of envisioning that. And again, you know, as much as, as Laura hates it, Isaiah understands it's okay for beasts to behave beastly. It's okay for wolves to attack lambs. That's what they were designed to do. It's okay for lions to eat baby calves. That's what they were made to do. It's okay for beasts to behave beastly. But what's not okay is for humans who bear the image of God to behave beastly. You see, humans are set apart because we've been gifted the imago Dei, the image of God. We have been created in the image of God. 
And so it's okay for beasts to behave beastly, but it's not okay for humans to behave beastly. It's not okay for humans and empires, governmental systems, to act like beasts and exploit those who have less power. And this is the theme that Isaiah is working on here, but it's also the theme that other prophets like Daniel work on as well. In Daniel's book, he says this. He said, here's the problem with the world. He said, we've got all these beastly governments that are out there. And then he, he talks about one government being like a lion and another one like a bear, and this one's like a leopard. And then there's one he just calls the beast. It's just a beast. And, and he says, things just keep getting worse. But then he says, there's going to come a day when the Son of Man comes. He, he says that in the midst of all these beastly systems, there is going to be someone who is truly human that enters into the picture. He says, you see, all these kings and all these kingdoms, the, the problem is they've been all acting beastly, but one day there is one who is going to come from the heavens and the Son of Man is going to come in and he is going to teach us what it truly means to be human and to act humanely and not beastly. And this image, it gets recycled over and over and over again, clear into the book of Revelations. The, the beastly exploitation of the weak. It's something, it's something that Isaiah says that the root of Jesse is going to change. This is the messianic vision that's been given to us by Isaiah. And Isaiah looks and he says, man... He says, you know, we're, we're living in this world where the rich are taking advantage of the poor and the whole system is actually, it's rigged in their favor. And so the rich just keep getting richer and the poor just keep getting poorer and, and they can't get any justice. But he says, there's going to come a day when the shoot of Jesse, when the shoot of Jesse comes, he's going to change some stuff. And when he comes, the poor are going to be provided for and the exploited are going to get fairness and justice that they deserve. And this is the vision. And he says, all of this is going to come about not through a, 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 a military coup. It's not going to come out about by a force of military or governmental power. He says it's going to come about by his word. His word. The Messiah is going to bring about change in the hearts and minds of human beasts by his word. To the, to the point where instead of having or behaving beastly towards the vulnerable, they'll behave humanly the way they were created to behave. Or to put, put them in a more poetic way, the lion will lie down with the lamb. He says that's what's going to happen when this Messiah, the root of Jesse, comes. Now, now of course, we Christians, uh, we got any Christians here today? A couple of you, good, good. We Christians, we know that Jesus Christ is the root of Jesse, right? And, and I mean, you know, Isaiah may not know his name. He may just call him Emmanuel or Wonderful Counselor, but we know his name. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the root of Jesse Jesus is the Messiah. And so I want you to get this. Isaiah, in this prophecy, this is 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah is looking forward and he's prophesying about something that hasn't happened yet. But for us, when we read this, we know it's already happened. 
The, the messianic king who causes the lion to lie down with the lamb has already come. And so this is so fitting. We're heading towards Christmas this week. And, and what is Christmas? Christmas is the birth of this king that Isaiah was anticipating. And so, in other words, since Christmas has come, the first Christmas has happened, since Jesus has already come, then that means the day that the lion lies down with the lamb has already come as well, right? Some of you don't look convinced. <laughs> You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus has come for sure. But, but the lion still hasn't lied down with the lamb, right? I mean, that must be for later because I don't see that everywhere around me. That must be for Jesus' second advent. Let me, let me give you the answer to that. No, it's already happened. Jesus has come. It, 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 Isaiah says, when he comes, when the shoot of Jesse comes, this is what's going to happen. And, and the entire reason that Jesus came was to, by the sacrifice of his love to make those who were living in a way that they weren't created, those who were living beastly, begin to live as they were created and to become truly human. What it means to be truly human. Jesus came. He gave his life on the cross in order to make the lion lie down with the lamb. And all throughout the Gospels, we see this happen over and over and over again. I want to give you just a couple of examples. Uh, the first one is in Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew tells us about this wolf who was preying on these little lambs of Jericho. There, there was this wolf, and he was devouring the little lambs of Jericho. And the name of this wolf was Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And as much as we may not like the tax collectors in our day and age, in Zacchaeus' day, the tax collectors, they were like, well, they were like beasts. They really were. I mean, here's how it worked. You know, let, let's say I wanted to be a tax collector. Uh, what, what, what would have to happen if I wanted to be a tax collector? First of all, I'd already have to be somewhat wealthy. Because what I would do is I would actually bid on a geographical area that I wanted to collect the taxes from. So let's say I wanted to collect taxes from all of you. You all look like a wealthy bunch of people. And so I want to collect uh, the taxes from you. And you got to remember, all of Israel is occupied by Rome. And, and all, the, all that the Romans want is they want the money. They want to collect these taxes to keep their machine moving. So they want the money. And one of the things that they have learned over a couple of centuries of doing that is that if they send Roman tax collectors into these occupied lands, then there's a big problem. I mean, people really tend to resist, and it's a big problem. And so what they did was they would get some local people to collect the taxes for them. So I'm one of you, and I decide y'all look pretty wealthy, and I can collect taxes from you. And so what I would do is I would make a bid and so I would go to Rome and I would say you know what I think I could collect like you know let's say 10 million dollars out of this district here I think I could collect 10 million dollars of tax revenue out of this district and if I have the highest bid then I would get the commission and I would be authorized by the Roman government to oppose taxation upon the community of which I belong which is you guys you're welcome 
And, and so if that happened, if I made that bid and I got the bid, then listen, man, I got to come through. I mean, because you didn't tell Rome you were going to do something and then not do it. If you don't collect, you're going to be in trouble. And, and so I have to get that $10 million out of you or there would be severe consequences. And, and the way that the tax collector would they make their money, so the way I make money, my money is, once I collect the $10 million from you, anything I collect above that, that's mine. And, and so Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. And, and when, I, when I say tax collector, don't, don't think this guy right here. That's not what we're talking We're not talking about some, you know, bureaucratic nerd in a corner office, all right? Those weren't the tax collectors of, of Zacchaeus' day and age. Instead, think these guys right here. Yeah, that, that's, that's more what it is. You know, give me your money, bada bing, bada boom. All right? And so just imagine, you got this little shop there in Jericho, and you're just trying to get by. And, and I mean, you're just barely getting by, and one day Zacchaeus comes in, and he doesn't come in alone. No, he's got his muscle with him, you know. He's a chief tax collector, and so he's got some of his underling tax collectors with him. And, and so he comes in, he's got three other guys, and Zacchaeus walks up to you and says, Hey, I'm going to need five grand by Friday. All right? And while he's saying that, you know, his guys are over looking at stuff on the shelves and they accidentally knock some stuff off the shelves. And Zacchaeus says, man, I, you know, if you don't have the money by Friday, I'd hate to think what might happen to your little shop here. This is the way that the tax collectors work. He, he was a wolf preying on those with less power than he had. He had the power of Rome behind him. And so he's a wolf. He's collaborating with the Roman Empire, which, by the way, is the beast. And he becomes beastly himself, preying on his own community. He takes advantage of them because they're afraid of him, and so he exploits them for his own gain. He's a wolf devouring the little lambs of Jericho. All but one day, the root of Jesse comes to town. And we know his name by now. He's Jesus of Nazareth. And this, this wolf, he's heard about Jesus. He's, he's heard about all the miracles and everything that Jesus has done. And so he wants to see Jesus. And so he climbs up a tree. Y'all didn't know wolves could climb trees. This one could. He climbs a tree. And when Jesus passes by, Jesus looks up in the tree. He sees this wolf and he says, hey, Mr. Wolf, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to have dinner at your house. And everybody's ticked off. They're upset because, you know, why, why is he going to the wolf's house? Why is he going to go to the, the house of the one who's devouring us little lambs? He ought to eat with one of us little lambs. But Jesus goes to the wolf's house. And then during dinner, this wolf encounters love. Maybe for the first time, probably for the first time. And he says in response to encountering love, he says, you know what? I'm going to give away half of my wealth to the poor. And for everybody that I've robbed, I'm going to pay them back times four. And Jesus says, hey, wolf, today salvation has come to your house. And the wolf lied down with the lamb. Some of you may be familiar with uh, St. Francis of Assisi. And uh, there's a famous legend about St. Francis and the wolf of Gubbio. 
And, and this legend, it goes that there was a wolf near this village of Gubbio in, in Italy. And, and the wolf began to devour some of the townspeople in Gubbio. He just came in and he would just eat the people in the town. And so one day St. Francis comes to town and he finds out about this. And so he goes out, he finds the wolf, and he has this conversation with the wolf. And he says, now, Mr. Wolf, you got to stop being so beastly. I mean, you can't be eating up all these fine people of Gubbio. Instead, let's make a deal. How about if the townspeople regularly provide you with food, and in return, you stop devouring the people? And the legend goes that St. Francis, he even draws up this contract and even has the wolf put his paw print on the contract. And for the next several years, the wolf freely comes into town and the people welcome him into their houses and they feed the wolf and they visit and the people and the wolf becomes friends and eventually the wolf of Gubbio dies and because of the relationship he had built with the people, they all grieve his passing. Now, this is a legend, but it's also the truth. It's not just a legend. It, it actually, believe it or not, it actually happened. Of course, the real story, the wolf wasn't a wolf wolf. It was a human wolf. The real story is that there was a local nobleman who began losing workers to the emerging mercantile class. And, and in his anger, he started attacking the people. And so St. Francis comes to town, and he meets with the noblemen and the workers. He mediates, and he brings peace to the situation so that the wolf of Gubbio lies down with the lamb. There's another story in the book of Acts, and Luke tells us about this one. And this one, let's call this one a lion, Luke tells us about this lion that shows up on the scene, and this is in the early stages of the Jesus movement, and, and right there in Jerusalem, this, this lion, he begins to attack the flock. And this was in the very first decade after the death and resurrection of Jesus, and this lion, he shows up on the scene, and he is intent on destroying the entire flock, all of the lambs. This lion had a name, and the lion's name was Saul of Tarsus. You know, the lion, not only, he wasn't only there when, when Stephen was stoned, but he actually gave his approval when Stephen was stoned to death. And this lion, he had a reputation of, of going into the flock and dragging out the sheep and imprisoning them and torturing them and some of them even putting to death. And this lion, his goal was he was trying to scatter the flock and trying to destroy the flock. And one day, this lion gets papers and he decides to head up north. He had gotten permission to attack the flock in Damascus. And on his way, this lion, who was known as Saul of Tarsus, has an encounter with a lamb. Not just any lamb, the lamb. Jesus shows up and says, Lion, lion, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And when this lion encounters the love of the lamb, all of a sudden it knocks him off his feet. He hits the ground and his life is forever transformed. He's no longer a beast acting beastly. He's no longer Saul the lion, the lamb devourer. Now all of a sudden he is Paul, a shepherd of the flock, a protector of the flock. 
And, and then the, the, this former sheep-devouring lion, Saul of Tar- Tarsus, that we, we now know as Paul the Apostle, he has a dream one night. And in his dream, he sees this man over in Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And so Paul and his co-missionary Silas, they head over to Macedonia, and they go into a Roman colony by the name of Philippi. And while they're in Philippi preaching the good news, they get arrested by the Roman officials and thrown into prison. And while they're in prison, they were beaten with rods. Beaten with rods. Beaten with rods. Tortured. They, 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 were, they were tortured. And this torture that was inflicted upon them was probably inflicted by the local dungeon keeper, the jailer. And you can pick your beast. He was a wolf, he was a lion, he was a leopard. The reality is he was a beast. And he worked for the big beast, the Roman government, the big beast in Rome. And under Roman authority, this beast is using torture against Paul and Silas for talking about the love of Jesus. They're tortured for talking about the love of Jesus. And after beating them, he takes this beast, takes them, and he throws them down in the dark, dirty dungeon, and he puts them in stocks. And so here they are. They've been beaten. Their wounds have not been treated. They're bloody. They're bruised. And this beast chains them in this dark, nasty, dirty dungeon. And it was there in the dark, in the middle of the night, that these two lambs, Paul and Silas, that had been led to the slaughter by the beast. You know, he's just a beast. He he believes in overpowering the powerless, uh, exploiting the weak, but these two lambs, there in the dark, nasty dungeon, they began to sing praises to God. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures, all us creatures. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And as they're singing, the amazing happens. There's this big earthquake, and the earthquake is so powerful that their chains were snapped off, and the stocks fell apart, and the doors of the prison swing open, and this beast, who was their jailer, he gets his lantern, and he runs down, and he sees that the doors are wide open, and he goes, well, you know, that's it. I'm done for, because he knows that he's going to get blamed for their escape, and he knows that he's going to have to pay for it, for it with his life, and so he takes out his sword, and right before he falls on his sword to take his own life, he hears one of these lambs say, hey, it's Paul, and we're all here. Don't, don't do it. Don't do it. We're all here. And, and, and the beast comes, and he falls on his knees before these two little lambs, Paul and Silas. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Saved from what? From being a beast. He says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, oh, that's simple. Just embrace love. (laughs) I mean, just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the root of Jesse, the Lamb of God, who loved the world so much that he gave his own life for you so that you wouldn't have to be a beast. 
He's the one who, who will slay the beast with just a word from his mouth. And Paul says, listen, I know, because that's what happened to me. He says, one day, uh, you know, I used to be a beast, and then one day I encountered love, and he spoke the word, and he slayed the beast within me, and now instead of devouring the weak and powerless, I care for them. I take care of them. And so Paul says, just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. You'll be rescued. You'll be salvaged. You'll be restored. Not just you, but your entire household, and that very night, Paul winds up baptizing the Philippian jailer. And the Philippian jailer winds up bringing Paul and Silas into his house. And this is such a beautiful, tender scene because it says that he winds up washing their wounds. The wounds that more than likely he inflicted. He, he washes their wounds. He was once a beast. But now he he. He washes and he cares for them. He cares for their wounds. And you know what happened? It was simple. Love showed up. That's what made the difference is that love showed up. And as a result of love showing up, his heart was softened. And the lion lay down with the lamb. That's what happened. So you see, it really is true. When, when, when people meet Jesus and they hear the word and they believe the word, the breath of his mouth, the lion lays down with the lamb. One, one, one more verse. One more verse. It says, in that day, the heir to David's throne, the, the root of Jesse, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to the world. What must I do to be saved? Paul, Paul says, just believe, you know, believe on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. You and your entire household. All Paul was doing was he was lifting up the banner. That was the banner. In that day, the root of Jesse will be a banner of salvation to the entire world, to the nations. The whole world will rally to him and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. Why will it be a glorious place? Because it's a place where there ain't no beasts. It's a place where the lion lays down with the lamb. It's a place where Jesus Christ is the root of Jesse whose love tames the beast within our hearts. And the people of God, us, the people of God, we are the banner over which salvation flies. We're the people where that banner flies. It's amongst God's people, that's the glorious place where the lion really does lie down with the lamb. You see, all this place is, it's a gathering place for former beasts who have encountered the lamb and have become lambs come. That's all this place is. When you encounter love and the beast within you is tamed and, and all of a sudden the lion lies down with the lamb. I'm going to invite Brian to come and help us as we close out. But here's what I want to do as we close. I mentioned earlier, told the story of, of St. Francis taming the wolf of Gubbio. And, and I, I think this morning it would be fitting for us to simply close by saying a prayer that 
St. Francis so famously prayed. I'm going to put it up on the screen. I just want to invite you to pray this with me. I want you to just pray this with me out loud. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen and amen. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. As we're closing this out uh, this morning, I want to encourage you to grab your Connect card and the buckets uh, on the end of each of the rows. Uh, maybe the Lord's been speaking to you this morning in um, 